What up, what up, Meepsters? This is Ryan Rainbro, and if you're hearing this, that means you're about to listen to one of the 99 free episodes of the Meep Meep podcast available wherever you cast pods. But keep in mind that there are new and unreleased episodes of the show on patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. So you'll want to sign up there to hear future episodes and also other side projects like Choo Choo, the show about soundtracks and contribute suggestions for future episodes as well. Will I listen to your suggestion? <laughs> There's only one way to find out. Patreon.com slash meetmeetpod. Bye! Roadrunner Podcast, where each week we discuss an album and the canon of Roadrunner Records and how it informs music today. Let's roll! What up, what up, Meepsters? I'm Ryan Rainbow, and today we have a really cool episode of the show. In between last week with Death Metal Stalwart's Obituary and next week's interesting experiment with Frontline Assembly, we have an act you might be less familiar with, but absolutely deserves your attention. I'm talking about Kevin Salem. Kevin is a singer-songwriter who performs a style of American rock and roll often compared to the likes of Neil Young. He's also worked with big names in various corners of the musical world like Butch Vig of Garbage, Daryl Jennifer of The Bad Brains, and Lisa Loeb of Lisa Loeb. Plus, as a member of the New York Board of Education, he is the second elected official on the show so far. Let's see if we can get Meep Meep into the curriculum. Meep Meep! Were there bands on the label that you were a fan of or became a fan of? Well, fan would be a strong word, but let me just put it this way. You know, I... Like, when I met the guys in Fear Factor, I thought, these guys are really cool. And then I listened to their music, and I actually think Fear Factory are a great band. I mean, you know, I could say Sepultura are a great band, too. Not something I would, like, listen to a lot or would have listened to back then. The thing about Roadrunner is, like, you just mentioned a bunch of things that I forgot about. You know what I mean? (laughs) And, like, honestly, a lot of them were really good. You know, there was some stuff that I was just like, yeah, you know, I'm I'm an adult. You know what I mean? Like, <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> uh, but yeah, like there was a lot of stuff that I appreciated. I mean, the stuff that they sort of signed after me that was sort of more like, you know, wh- whatever you want to call it, like American rock and roll or whatever, was the least of it, actually. I, but I, I think Fear Factory w- was the one band that when I heard them and saw them, I was like, fuck, these guys are good. And they're really nice guys, too. I mean, I ran into them long after my Roadrunner days, but I was at, at uh, Sirius XM doing a radio thing, and they were coming out as I was going in. And uh, they're just really good guys. They were a really solid band, and they were really kind of ahead of their time, like in terms of like their sort of ability to synthesize you know, certain kinds of sounds. So, yeah, I mean, it was an interesting label. It was, it was a fascinating experience for me. Yeah, so uh, what led you to be on Roadrunner? You know, before uh, your episode, I had uh, The Moon Seven Times, and they kind of became on the label. I know also Jeff Packman, same manager, but they came on the label because of an acquisition that Roadrunner did of a a smaller label that they happened to be on. But I don't think the story is the same for you, right? So how did you end up on Roadrunner? So uh, Roadrunner hired Jeff Packman. You know, I had come from like... uh, like I was a guitar player in bands, you know, and uh, around 1990, like 
at the end of 1992, I got really sick. It turned out to be Lyme disease, but it took a really long time to figure out what it was. And so by the, you know, it was like a year and I couldn't work. And I mean, I was like homeless. I mean, I was real sick and I ended up in the hospital. And at the time, you know, because of, you know, my, uh, a lot of, you know, because of the time it was, because I, you know, I mean, I, I wasn't like a big, uh, drug doer, but I, you know, I was a part of your, and a lot of people were like, that guy has AIDS or something's really wrong with him. <laughs> and like, I didn't really, I couldn't work. So I was in the hospital for a, a while when they figured out what was wrong with me. And, um, I was like, I got to work, you know, music is my job. So I wrote some songs. I mean, I had been writing, but I never really intended to be that. But so, you know, I was like, I got to make a job for myself. So I'm going to form a band and I'm going to get signed. And Jeff Packman was, there were other offers, but for something about Roadrunner, I, first of all, I really liked Jeff. Uh, but the other thing was, it, there was something about the idea of like, you know, at the time, Roadrunner was really just like a death metal label. Like that's, that was like what people would like, you know, if you mentioned Roadrunner, it'd be like death metal. And I just thought, man, if I do this and it works, it's going to be genius. Like I thought this is really a great, like it fit with my, you know, whatever punk rock, like anti-establishment ethos to go with this death metal label. It was interesting. I was the only thing, you know, at the time there wasn't any other sort of, you know, nothing like that, you know, not, you know, not American indie rock. Um, so it just seemed like a really interesting move. You know, I thought it was had a nice like fuck you element to it. <laughs> yeah, well, I mean, you're not wrong in, in the sense that you would be unique for being on it at the time. And I mean, not that it's the same kind of music, but Nickelback, of course, you know, uh, not long after that, they become exactly what you're describing. They're like not a, a death metal. Some people might say they're not even a metal band. And then they become their, you know, anomaly that makes millions of dollars. Yeah, yeah they were huge. I mean, and that was, well, I, that couldn't have been like more than, I don't remember what year that was, but it was a year or two after. Like, I definitely heard their name in the later part of my time on Roadrunner. Like, I knew that they, they were in the pipeline somewhere. Yeah, I mean, the label was successful, though, with everything they did. I mean, all those bands that we just mentioned, they all had audiences, you know, like Roadrunner really knew how to do what they did. And, and you know, in some ways, like, I think... uh I've learned to appreciate that actually all my life, you know, like I've been in bands that like they do this specific thing, but just really well, you know, it's like a narrow building, but built really tall. And that's kind of the way Roadrunner was. And, you know, I think some of what they did worked for me. The album is called Soma City. What does that mean? Well, like I said, I was really sick and, uh, you know, Soma, like of the body. And also uh, I had. Part of being sick was I uh, quit doing drugs. Yeah, the only other time I've ever heard of Somas is I'm a big wrestling fan. And back in the 90s, uh, wrestlers would get addicted to Somas because, you know, it'd be like a painkiller. So I was but then I was like, well, Salem is a city in Massachusetts. Maybe it's South Massachusetts. Soma. (laughs) So I didn't know if I was. No, no, there is like I didn't know that there was, you know, south south of Market Street in, in San Francisco, Soma. You know, I didn't like it was a more like Aldous Huxley and, you know, the psychology of my, uh, you know, getting getting healthy and uh, drug culture and um, literary references than uh, than geographic ones. OK, cool. cool. <laughs> uh, the album cover is just a picture of you 
kind of in the in the shadows? Was that just to be upfront with the kind of music this was going to be? Because you can kind of tell what uh, what your sound. I shouldn't say you can tell what your sound is. That's a little prejudice, but you can tell you're not a metal band by this picture. Yeah, definitely that. Uh, it's a funny thing about that picture. Like at the time, you know, I had been in bands, you know, that were pretty popular, and you know, I, uh, you know, I, I had never really anticipated or wanted to be you know, a solo artist or a front man. I always loved just being the guitar player, uh, playing other people's songs. And um, so I like, I didn't want to get my picture taken. So there was this woman called Ann Arden McDonald, and she was a friend of uh, David Dunton, who played piano in my band. And Ann is a, still is a, she's a pretty famous photographer. And up at that point, I mean, she does more sort of uh, other you know, uses other media forms now. But at that point, all she did was self-portraiture. Like everything she did was beautiful. You can look up her work. It's amazing, stunning work. Um, and uh, and I thought, well, the only person I'm going to let take my picture is this person who is so, you know, I just made the assumption she must be really self-conscious to only take her own pictures. So I'm going to get someone that is so sensitive about having her picture taken that, you know, she will understand how much I just don't want to have my picture taken. So I went to her apartment and she had these old plastic cameras from the 50s called Diana, Diana cameras. Uh, they have like leaks in them. They have all these come with these little quirks and they were just old things. And, um, you know, she had just a couple candles lit. And those were the pictures, you know, just taken oh without a flash, just taken in her living room. I had actually, I, I played with a guy called 3D Johnston before, and um, he had a record called Can You Fly? And I had shown him her work, her self-portraiture, and his cover of that album, which is a pretty famous record, is also one of her self-portraits. So this is all candlelight then, this cover? Yeah. Oh, wow, that's pretty cool. Because it looks like a picture that's been, you know, through some filters and things like that to kind of make it like shadowy and stuff. But you're saying that's all natural and then of course the logo and things like that on top of it yeah it's it's like the uh um like those you know apps that have those filters some of them right. have an app for that camera like a diana oh, okay <laughs> um yeah so it, it sort of just comes with the territory you know so you mentioned that you were playing with other people before you decided to get serious about your own musical career so these songs that are on this album are they more so a collection of songs that you writ? you've written <laughs> that you've written over different periods of time or were they focused like you sat down you're like i'm gonna have an album so i would say uh there are there are like a few of them that were from you know at one point when i first moved to new york uh in 1990 a couple years after that i was like maybe i'll make a solo record you know my career as a sideman was going pretty well and time when like people knew who played in bands you know and i was like well i have an audience like um so there were a few of those songs uh, from that period. But when I met the guys that sort of became my band, because that, that, that album is really like a band. It's not really just me and a bunch of sidemen. Like we were we were pretty tight, you know. Um, uh, like I knew who was going to be playing the songs and uh, I wrote for that band in that moment. So half of them, and you know, uh, uh, the song In a Whisper was written uh, we we made the record in four days. In a Whisper was written the morning of, you know, it was like an afterthought. Just like, let's just, I have an idea, let's do this. And, um, you know, so half of them, maybe a little bit more, like I, I think there's a dozen songs, probably eight of them were written in the months leading up to the record. 
and a few of them had been kicking around from before. Yeah, it's definitely identified within the artwork of the album that it's a, a band. You know, you have a picture of everybody playing on it, so you weren't trying to have this. Well, you even say you literally didn't want the spotlight on you so much you didn't want your picture taken. But uh, I guess it's probably just more of a marketing thing that it sounds better Kevin Salem than Kevin Salem Band or something like that, right? Yeah, I mean, you know, one thing I discovered, especially at that time, I mean, being like a, you know, quote, solo artist at that time, I mean, it's different now, but at that time it was, um, it was hard to do, you know, like you, like what I, I made like rock and roll records, right? Like, you know, like it was a certain kind of record that was made by bands, you know, predominantly, but I would go on tour as, and it would say Kevin Salem. And people, I always felt like people were a little confused, like to see a rock and roll band come out instead of like, you know, a dude with an acoustic guitar. So before you make this album too, just kind of, you know, building the timeline here, you also worked with Lisa Loeb before she uh, goes I, on to yeah. be the biggest singer in the world, right? Yeah, right before. <laughs> um, and then of course, Butch Vig is a co-writer on one of the songs on this album, and that's I mean, he's got a, a production credit to his name that's it's pretty well known as far as doing Nevermind and doing uh, he had just done, I think, Siamese Dream right before he does your yeah, album. Yeah, yeah. But Garbage is not the monster that it would become after that. Garbage right? was just starting. So what like uh, so I played with this guy, Freddie Johnston, and Freddie was like on a, a little label. Some, uh, you know, legendary Dutch music journalist discovered this tiny little album he made for Bar None. And we ended up playing all the time in Holland, like touring Holland. It's sort of like touring the five boroughs. You know, what I mean, it's it's like it's like touring one corner of South Carolina. <laughs> you know, we would go there and we would be there for like two or three weeks. And we played every little city and every big city there. Freddie really got some support and we toured a lot in America without really a record deal. We were making this record. Can you fly? The record came out great. And he got a big record deal on Electra. And we we were playing at CBGB's and. He was like, well, the label wants to know who's going to produce the record. And it was kind of a joke, but it also wasn't a joke. I was like, well, you know, at the time, Butch Vig was like the biggest producer in the world. You know, it's like, we did. Well, it's only one choice. Let's get Butch Vig. And we did. So Butch produced 3D's record. And uh, we were doing guitar takes one day. And I was in the control room. And I was playing the, you know, the chorus that Butch is like pounding on his feet <laughs> going, and he starts singing won't be coming back and I was like okay we just wrote a song together <laughs> oh so that was it that was the the collaboration right there that was the collaboration right there yeah I mean we you know we worked on Freddie's record for like two months um, so we spent a lot of time you know in the studio. he's obviously a great producer great guy kind of a brilliant drummer you know on top of other things like you said butch vig has just done nevermind and siamese dream which are you know platinum selling life-changing records for a lot of people and then he's willing to do not to take anything away from you or freedy but you know i not as a household name as nirvana they don't sell his t-shirts at walmart dude i was shocked like like i said it was kind of half a joke we were it was like after sound check and we a friend of our like what the bass player jared his girlfriend had an apartment on the Bowery and we were walking over and I was like, let's get Butch Vig. It really was kind of a joke. I was astonished when he said yes. And I was astonished at how proficient he was at sort of the singer songwriter thing. Um, and it, it like, it wasn't a hit record, but it had like a, you know, a minor hit single that, you know, Freedy still probably 
operate stuff under, you know, all these years later. Um, yeah, it, it was, it, you know, it was just, things were a little different then. You know what I mean? If you were, <laughs> were on like a giant label, you, like you had a budget and like there were, you know, for, I think Soma City, I think we might've done that record in the winter right before, we made Soma City in April and I think we did Freedy's record in the winter before that. Um, cause one of the songs on Soma City, Freedy was kind of at one point, like, you know, saying he needed songs and, uh, the song Diviner on Soma City, I was like, ah, oh, I'll write this and maybe Freedy will like it, you know? No, that's awesome. What a cool story. You got to work with them on multiple records, really, from what you're describing. Yeah. So you talked about Diviner and that's definitely an interesting song on Soma City because the first, you know, four or five songs are are pretty rockin' tunes, very guitar-driven, things like that. And Diviner kind of brings the album to a grinding halt. It is, <laughs> <laughs> it's a seven-plus-minute just, I mean, it is, it's, uh, it's very much a different tempo and feel than everything that comes before it, and most of what comes after it, really. So was that deliberate to put that in the middle of the album to kind of give it a, a, a dividing point? I mean, it's so dramatically different in, in mood and everything than the rest of the songs. You know, I, I think um, everything about that album in its, in its own way was deliberate, but also everything was sort of unconsciously done. But, you know, like if, uh, I have a friend that says this, like if music were baseball, my natural position would be guitar player. <laughs> you know, so uh, like I, um, like I have a certain thing that I like to do with guitar and I, I believe in the guitar. and. You know, remember like it in 1994 when we made that album, that was probably like the fifth consecutive year that like the Village Voice, you know, Paz and Jop poll, you know, the year end like best albums began with a paragraph how, about how guitar was dead. So people like Bob Mould and I, and this was just sort of right at the beginning of like what, you know, became, you know, like a certain kind of Americana, like Wilco and bands like that. Um, and, you know, to me, it was just like a, an opportunity to express something with a guitar more than it was about tempo or, you know, anything like I love those big reverby long guitar solos. There are a couple songs that I have uh, played at every show I've ever done. And Ruin You is one of them. That's like my probably my, my favorite song on that album to play. Um, and it's kind of like, you know, in that world of like, I don't know, the things that I grew up on. Like Velvet Underground, and you know, weird, you know, you know, bands like Felt, bands that had like lots of weird little guitar corners in them. Bob Mould, also former writer for World Championship Wrestling, probably absolutely. around a lot of somas. Absolutely, absolutely, yes. You know what's really weird though? Uh, what? So, right after Soma City, uh, I was hired to cut vocals for. Uh, a bunch of professional professional wrestlers i don't know their names because like oh I man well I, you need to find that out that's very important to me it was every one of them it was a weird session though at one point i was like i was like oh <laughs> you know and uh i i made a joke and i don't even really remember what joke i made but like one of the guys you know i, I said something smart ass about how bad his voice was it was legitimately awful and he just stared at me like i'm gonna <laughs> fucking kill you I was like, uh, I can fix it. <laughs> we'll fix it in the mix. <laughs> so you mentioned that you're, you know, a, a producer um, and 
in more recent times. I mean, this is 94, so a lot of years have been more recent than that. But I know that uh, you did a lot of work or maybe continue to do a lot of work with uh, Rachel Yamagata. But on yeah. this album, Sid Straw uh, provides a lot of background vocals. Though Rachel in 94 is probably like a child. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so how did that collaboration come about? So Sid was, uh, she was a big Freedy fan. And when we were we were on tour, like uh, we just rode around America for like, I don't know, a year, really, like all the time we were out there. And uh, Sid was a fan of Freedies. And one I remember one night uh, we were playing in Los Angeles somewhere and uh, Sid was in L.A. and she just jumped in the van after the show and she was out with us for, you know, a couple months, whatever it was. Um, she just kind of joined the band. I love her vocals. The songs that she's on make the songs. Even Forever Gone, which uh, I know we got the, the butch bump on there. If it didn't have Sid on there, I don't know if I'd love it as much as I do. Yeah, I know. Sid is so great on that album. And I mean, you know, that album was really like, I mean, Nico Bolas, who produced it. Uh, that's also a really weird story because I had no idea who he was. So I'm a producer, but. I will tell you, like people ask, you know, what does a producer do? And one of the things we try and do is just make the artist weightless, you know, so that they don't really know what's happening. Just blur the whole process so that they're just in their sort of creative, you know, uh, flow. And Nico did that so well. I mean, I remember Sid coming. I mean, she I, I feel like she was in the studio for about 20 minutes. You know, that part, like making that album like the technical part of it was just so fucking easy and it just felt so good and it's you know sequencing it like you asked like was you know diviner put where it was for a specific reason like that is the only album i've ever made uh, you know you know as a guitar player as a producer as a you know a, an artist where like i was like this is how this album goes together there isn't one other way that it fits together and it's still the like i i try to use it as a pattern for how i sequence records when i make records now but um that one was just kind of easy and and you know sid was another part of the record that was just like wow that just happened so easily you know did nico ever tell you cool stories about kiss not about kiss but some uh, he's still he's like uh he told me lots of cool stories about lots of people he's still really like a brother to me he's really my one of my three best friends in the world and he tells me he still works with neil young all the time at the time i didn't know who he was so like uh, we were playing at this bar called Brownies one night, um, and uh, Nico was out front, you know, trying to meet a girl. And uh, he heard our band, and he came in, and he just handed me a piece of paper. And he's like, "My name's Nico. I'd love to record your band." I I didn't think anything of it, but like, so I had I lived in Brooklyn, and uh, I. At the time when I was when I would produce, I had an engineer I used called Tom Doobie, and Tom was down from Boston, and we were working with Lisa Loeb, and he sees this piece of paper on my coffee table. This is months after, which shows you how often I clean my apartment. He sees a piece of paper that says Nico, and it has a, a number on it. He's like, "Is this Nico Bolas?" And I'm like, "I don't know who's Nico Bolas." And he told me, and I was like, "I don't know. Let's call him and find out." And I called him. And he was like, yeah, I remember you. I'd love to make your record. And at the time I was, you know, I had just gotten signed and I, I was getting ready to make my record. And I really wanted uh, Coldery and Slade to do it because I knew them from my Boston days. 
and that didn't really happen. Uh, I think uh, their manager who managed another band I was in previously kind of wanted another one of his clients to do it, who's also a good friend of mine now. But when I couldn't have Coldery and Slade, I called Nico and I was like, I don't really have much money. It's like the budget is kind of slim on this. He's like, I have frequent flyer miles. When do you want to do it? I was like, next week. And he came from L.A. and uh, we did a rehearsal. And, you know, we went in the studio on Monday, cut tracks for four days, mixed it on Friday. Well, not only is that a shockingly fast turnaround time, but you mentioned not having the budget. So did you make the album before you got signed to Roadrunner? And No, I was signed to Roadrunner, but, you know, it was a tiny little deal. I mean, which is like a, you know, I think in some ways I'm proud of that. In other ways, like I think like there were other offers on the table that were much, much bigger. Um, you know, like I could have put money in my pocket, but like I said, the thing about Roadrunner was like, it just had, it just fit my ethos, like the, the sort of, you know, unpredictability of it appealed to me. Um, but there wasn't much money and, uh, you know, I, I, you know, I think that's also something I feel strongly about in music. Um, you know, money is useful. It buys stuff. You know, I mean, it buys you studio time. It buys you great producers uh, like Nico and Butch. You know, I mean, you owe somebody all that money, you know, when you're done. And I just the idea of it felt gross to me, especially after just having been homeless, you know. Uh, so it, it appealed to me, the idea of like being frugal. And uh, and it totally worked for Nico and um yeah, he made Glimmer, too. He made my next record. as well. We still do whatever we can do together. We still do it together. Soma City almost actually worked, like, you know, in a commercial sense. Like, that actually almost happened. I mean, there were, there were contentious things about it, um, you know, between the label and I, but I think that would be the, the same anywhere. Uh, after Glimmer, then things got, yeah, rocky. So the album, you, you mentioned also the sequencing, how great the sequencing is for the album, which I don't disagree. It opens up with Lighthouse Keeper, which is just the banger, the hit, as far as <laughs> I'm concerned. I know that Will is technically the single you do the music video for. Why wasn't Lighthouse Keeper the, uh, the initial offering as far as a, a video? I think it was, it was supposed to be the second offering, but, you know, like that's the story of like the 90s and records is like it, uh, this big idea you know it's gonna we're gonna have this single and then this one and then this one and we're gonna be behind you all the way kid and then he after six months or three months or however long i mean lighthouse keeper was a single and there's actually a, a cool cd single of it i don't know if it was for sale but it went to radio stations and stuff you have the live cover of uh chris bell from big star yeah and then also another uh, B-side, well, I shouldn't call it B-side, another song that isn't on Soma City. So I was going to ask you how many songs you actually recorded for the album and then, you know, kind of selected from there. So that was a demo uh, that uh, my, the, my friend Tom Doobie, who I mentioned, he had a little space in Boston. And um, that's actually out now. On, like I put out a collection a couple years ago of stuff, just, you know. Just stuff that I like that never made it onto other records. Um, it's called Box of Words, and that's on there. I, and I actually really like that song. Um, yeah, there was sort of like a real depressing song called Anhedonia, which I don't think we ever even mixed. But yeah, we used most of what, what we made. There was other stuff floating around, you know. Um, yeah. Well, I, you're a prolific songwriter, so I'm sure you had plenty of other 
song ideas that you could have uh, come to fruition, but I just didn't know how many you actually ended up recording with Nico in this session. You know, I think we went in like thinking we're going to we're going to make a 10 song album. And then, like I said, a couple came up during the during the recording uh, in a whisper, which is one of my favorite tracks on the album was just like an afterthought and, you know, really was written in. I was just like, okay, play this. Don't worry about the words. I'm just going to mumble some stuff. The other thing about Soma City is that the instrumental parts of it were recorded mostly live. I mean, we all stood there without headphones in a giant room, like an airplane hangar, water music in, in Hoboken was a giant concrete bunker. And we were in one little corner of it with seven microphones and, you know, five people. Oh, I love that. I've always wanted to record a record live. And I think that albums like um, Chaos AD by Sepultura, which does not sound similar to Soma City, but it's recorded live. And I think it just you feel that energy. You know, it's just a, such a different vibe, especially with these songs where they kind of are a, you know, they're not overwhelmingly high energy, but the the power of them, you would feel more in a live setting than you are just listening to a kind of singer songwriter thing. Um, that makes sense that, you know, when you say that, that I can I can feel that like like Lighthouse Keeper feels like I'm at, you know, some outdoor festival or something listening to it when I hear it versus just in my car driving to work wishing I was dead. <laughs> is that what happens when you're driving to work? But, you know, but there is like a sonic energy to recording that way, too. Like it's not just it's it's the liveness of it, but it's also like, uh, you know, the one thing where Roadrunner that like sort of was the beginning of the rift that really like you know was they were like uh you know we gotta we gotta bring in some mixers like here's this guy he did new kids on the block and uh what was funny about it was that watching like these you know sort of corporate mixer dudes take this album that was made with seven microphones and like you turn up the snare drum and you're also turning up the guitar (laughs) <laughs> like you know you know what i mean the drums had like uh sometimes had a snare drum mic usually there were just three mics on the drums sometimes four but uh you know uh, it was it was funny and I, I think like i don't really listen to my own work but you know I'm, I'm looking out my my window and i have like a barn in my backyard that's my studio and after i, I moved here in like 1998 and i turned this barn into a studio and uh one night i fell asleep and uh you know, iTunes was in my studio on the speakers and it was just shuffling and it goes to Soma City. And I woke up and I was like, holy shit, I haven't really heard this since, you know, like the Friday night that we made it, you know, or, <laughs> you know, other than in the mastering room. And I really love this, like the, you know, I love Nico's idea for like how to make that record sound. You know, it was recorded on tape, but it was recorded on tape at the slowest speed instead of the highest speed. You know, because we couldn't really afford enough reels of tape to, you know, and we had four days, so we kind of had to do shit live, you know. Uh, Jim Rondinelli, a couple mixers took a stab at it. Uh, Jim Rondinelli mixed a few of the songs on the record, and that was a guy that I really loved working with. He was a producer, uh, and he, um, as a guitar player, like when you get to work with a producer that really turns you on as a guitar player, it's a great day. And this guy was like so good at like enabling you to rock out, like to just be, to feel like you're, even if you're overdubbing, to feel like you're in the room with the singer and the drummer. So he mixed a few, he mixed a few of the songs and he, he kind of got the concept, but really most of those mixes came from like 
you know, an eight hour day of mixing all 13 songs or however many it was. Wow. So you guys were efficient with the whole process, not just recording it, like re recording, mixing, mastering. Everything. Like it was, it was an idea. Like it was sort of like, a, you know, and it wasn't really my idea. That's the beauty of having a producer. I mean, I, I do that for other people, but I don't really do it for myself, you know, and Nico, uh, uh, is really good at that. Like Nico is like a dude that like grew up in LA and wanted to learn to be an engineer. And he worked in studios. And uh, if you, have you, you've heard the song Betty Davis Eyes, right? The, of course. Yeah. He's so got he Betty was, Davis <laughs> Exactly. He was like the, like a, a runner in the studio. He was just like, he was an intern. And, you know, I mean, I'm, I'm sort of embellishing the story with my silly voice and stuff. But, you know, I think one night, when the, everybody was having dinner, Nico was like, can I mess around with this and make a mix? And his <laughs> mix as an intern is the mix that you hear. Oh, wow. You know, and so he's like, uh, you know, he's, uh, I treat him like a photographer when I, like when he is my producer, like I talk to him more visually, like take a picture of us this way. You know what I mean? And uh, um, the album had an idea and it had a sound. When there's like seven microphones, you kind of just start with them in a straight line and there's not really, you know, like I said, the, you turn up the kick drum, you're literally turning up the whole band. You know, there's a mic under the drums. You turn that up, you're turning up the bass too. Um, you know, the guitar, you know, you turn up one guitar, you're turning all of them up. And so, you know, but that, I feel like that probably results in the album sounding like it sounds for you when you're playing, right? When you're recording, you because you are playing live, you have that same sound, how it sounds to you, because the amps are set to certain volumes and the drums are mic'd a certain way. So then you're getting to translate that more easily and immediately to the recording. Yeah, I mean, it's it's like a very unique um, to me. That's a very unique sounding record. And um, I, actually, when I was when Butch Vig heard it, he said it's not buttoned down. It's not like. Like it's it's a subtle way in which that record is not buttoned down. Like it's it's a very crazy sounding record. Uh, like a, you know, like the way Steve Albini records sound, but his records are much more usually much better rehearsed. That's really what that band sounded like. You know, I mean, that's that's who we were. And like when we heard it on the Friday night, we like listened to it, you know, on a cassette deck, and you know. I, you know, I mean, I'm a record producer, right? So, like, I make several records every year. And at this point, it's 2020. And the way you hear your own music, you know, first of all, record companies aren't paying for things. So it's like somebody spending their last 10 cents, you know, to make a record. And so they're very choosy or, that you know, often you don't really get to have five people in a room together. Um, you know, it's recorded, you know, like we joke about it, you know, like, okay, I'll record the backing vocals in the singer's bedroom you know what i mean um and you know i i think that that, that record has a sonic energy that comes like it to me it doesn't sound like any other record like it's it's re the rehearsal like i always want to tell like if i you know if i could have my way in the world i would say like okay you're going to make a record well you're going to go out and play these 10 songs and play them in bars for you know three months and then we'll make a record of it that's what that was that was like us, you know, and one or two of the songs, like I said, were written in there. And so that's the band learning the song. I'll tell you, a lot of gr glimmer happened that way. Even, uh, 
I, I mean, that was a totally different process. Uh, um, you know, when I think about Glimmer, here's all I can tell you. Like, second records are a fucking bitch. Second records are not like first records. You know, first record is like, you know. You're excited, right? <laughs> you're excited. You're like exploding, you know, with energy. And second record is like, you know, you're aware of what's going to happen to you. You know, you've already been asked every question that you're going to be asked about your life. You know, you've already, you know, played in Minneapolis 17 times, you've played Wave Fest in Charleston, you know, and you've had all the fun and, and, you know, with Hootie and the Blowfish and the Meat Puppets. Did I? Were they there? Yeah. I wish I had experienced that earlier in my career. I just never, you know, when it came to like playing solo, I was like, nah, it's not what I do. You know, when, when we made Soma City, uh, I was offered like 60 gigs opening for Tori Amos in theaters. And I was like, first of all, Tori Amos. Nah. <laughs> You know, not what I do, but, you know, I, again, like, you know, I mean, you got to give me a break. I was also an asshole and I mean, it was, it, it was, but, but like my biggest thing was like, yeah, I don't do that. I don't, you know, I was like, Tori Amos, but solo? No, it's not what I do. Around that time, like when, right after Soma City came out, I was, uh, I had written a, like I got a publishing deal uh, with Warner Chapel and like for them, I was like the punk who would write with like normal people or, or I could be the normal person who would write with punk, you know? And uh, somehow I ended up writing songs with Patty Smythe, not Patty Smith, but Patty Smythe, who was married <laughs> to John McEnroe. And the I remember, <laughs> yeah. And I remember <laughs> like going to see one of those Tori Amos shows that I didn't take. Willie Porter was opening it. Another dude I wrote songs with. And I, I went to see, uh, Tori Amos with Willie Porter and or I, with uh, John McEnroe and John McEnroe is kind of a punk too. Right. Uh, and, you know, uh, yeah, obviously. Throws <laughs> you know, um, the racket. I, yeah, exactly. And like, it, I think she was on stage for about three minutes and we just kind of looked at each other. And I was like, now <laughs> do we go now? <laughs> um, uh, I recorded the Dub Brains record, if you know that one. I did. I don't even know if it ever came out. I did Daryl Jennifer's solo record. I'll tell you, you know, so I live in Woodstock, New York, and um, Doc, you know, Dr. No, Gary, is like one of my favorite people and one of my favorite dudes to run into around here. And he is, a, he loves my daughter. My daughter loves him. He's just a beautiful dude and a great guitar player. I mean, he does something very specific, you know, that I don't do. I, I think I did on like popcorn too. Do you know that song? The one the HR came back to the bad brain. It was uh, it was an early version of what is now you know a 360 deal. That's what they did. So like they had my publishing, they had my merch. I mean, I remember I got these T-shirts. They were like, "We got this. We're gonna make T-shirts for you." And uh, I was like, "Okay," you know. And I was we were on the road. And we got these two giant boxes. Each one had 144 T-shirts. And we took them out. And me and the band just looked at each other like, this is pretty rough. I was like, I'm not fucking selling these. <laughs> you know, like, We're not selling them either. <laughs> we, we ended up giving them to a homeless shelter in Albuquerque. So somewhere in Albuquerque, there's like 280 guys that, you know, <laughs> have a T-shirt that has like a road sign that says Soma City, population one. 
Like your music video. Yeah, like my music video. You mentioned, you know, not loving um, having your picture taken. So, Will, you do a music video for. I got to imagine you don't love having your video taken either. Hated it. Still hate it. Hate video. Hate all videos. Won't ever do one where I'm in it. Maybe some part of my body. It's like, you know who, uh, you know who Mary Lou Lord is? All you see is like her left hand and the headstock of her guitar, and I'm like, that I can kind of swing with. That's that's like uh, that's okay by me. That's about as much of myself. Or like, if you want to see like the corner of my mouth or an ear or something, but like, it's just you know, I was thinking about this last night actually. I was thinking about an old friend of mine who's like, uh, if you know the band Speedball Baby, and I was just remembering some of our times when I was young, and we, I haven't seen him in decades. You know, and I was like, uh, you know, like if I saw him, like I would remember what we were and I would be and I was thinking, like, was I cool? I, you know, I was like asking myself, like, was I am I cool? Was I cool? All I know is when I see that fucking video, not cool. <laughs> <laughs> like that is just in fact, there's yeah, no, we uh, not cool. I mean, I, you know, I, I always tell people like. That's just not what I do. Like, I'm not a visual, like I think visually, but I don't think of myself visually. And uh, honestly, if, if anything uh, has been responsible for me, you know, uh, shying away from being a solo artist, it's that. It's like, I don't, especially now, like what you want me to like, you know, like do a pledge music, like, hi guys, I really want you to help out. and. <laughs> You know, it's like I that's just not it's not like, like it's not authentic, right? That's not who you are. It's not like it's not. Yeah, it's not, yeah. And, and even maybe I would even put it more like it's not what I do. Like I'm to be heard and not seen. First of all, like in that video, I was like, you know, all I ever wore was a white fucking T-shirt. And I look at the album cover. Recently, I found one um, like I never tucked a shirt in in my life. Like, why is my shirt tucked in? And the, like in that video, I'm like, that's not my shirt. That's Todd's shirt. I was wearing my normal. Like I was wearing a white fucking T-shirt. And somebody was like, you, you, you need, uh, can't, you got anything different than that? I'm like, I don't know. He does. I'm like, no, I don't fucking wear a hard collar shirt with stars on it ever, ever. You know, every fucking visual representation of myself for, you know, 30 years of a career is like, eh. Well, that's why you probably are spending more time now behind the scenes, right? You get to do the production. Um, did you ever have any interactions with uh, with Sace? Case is a fucking trip. Case and I had some a serious disagreement at the end. Like, I don't, I don't think Case cares much for me. Um, I actually, I'm amused by him. And you know, in the beginning, I had an incredible relationship with Case. Like, our our ethos is aligned very well at the beginning you know he his because he was he ran his label like a european label owner you know and i don't mean like mute records i mean it wasn't like you know 4ad or mute i mean he ran it like a boutique european label like we do it all we do it cheap and we'll support you you know and me i was like i do it all i do it cheap and i need support and so it worked out and I was kind of amused by this guy and his uh, like, I think people at the label um, and I would be remiss if I didn't mention Sue Marcus because she was the publicist and holy shit. 
Like you don't, you never heard of me without Sue Marcus. There's just, that, that is, that is that. She called me and I, I really make a habit of not reading anything about myself because that's, this is scary. And, you know, again, but she called me when she was like, you just got your first review. And I was like, oh my God, is it good? She's like, you should probably come up to the office. So I went up to the office and she shows me this review. And I think it was from like Stereo Review Magazine or Stereo something. It was like a hi-fi magazine. And it was and like the first sentence was, okay, this is going to be a rave. You know, and I was like, oh man, that feels good. But for Sue, I think she just like, she just got shit done. And I don't think anybody has ever worked harder for an artist at a label than Sue worked. I, I'm sure she... She was that way for everybody, but man, it was very special for me. Like I never felt more supported or more confident about any part of my career that I could deal with. That's different than getting my picture taken. I was like, wow, I, I, whatever you say, man, you just do it, do your thing. Eric Amble, who you worked with. Yeah. Essentially a member of Blue Mountain. He produced their album and I think played many instruments on it. Um, What was that like? Do you still keep up with him? I talked to him once in a while. We played a, a little thing together. His his uh, partner wrote a book about or compiled a book of dreams about Bob Dylan. And so Eric and I went and played some Dylan songs at a bookstore, a couple bookstores with her. And yeah, I, I'm, I, you know, he's he's a dear friend. I'm a big fan of him as a human and as a music maker. Yeah, another prolific uh, guy, not unlike yourself, that just has played with everybody in the last. Yeah. What is it that you would have done differently about making Soma City? Soma City, I wouldn't have done anything differently. I like so every once in a while I teach in college, you know, like I'll teach like recording people and I'll start by like holding this up and or something like, you know, I'll hold her album up and I'll say, What is this? And people will say, It's a record. And I'm like, A record? Well, why do you call it a record? It's like a square, it's a circle, it's vinyl, it's a collection of songs, it's an album. But you call it a record because it's a document. And I I actually really uh, I really believe in in that as like a you know core principle of record making. Like ab- above all, it has to be like an authentic document. And you know, I could say like this or that about Soma City, you know, about things that, you know, maybe I wish I'd sung this differently or I man, I, I think I could have written that line differently. But really, that is about as authentic a document as I've ever participated in making. Um, really, like I wouldn't, I'm, I'm happy to live with it the way it is. Glimmer's a little different story. Like that, I'm like, mm, a lot of that could be different. Like it, it's a different kind of document. It, it documents something much more difficult, a di- more difficult period of time. But uh, yeah, no, Soma City, I'm, I, I'll live with it the way it is. There's one very special memory. And we so we'd made this album and we knew we had to uh, we had to finish it. We, you know, Friday morning, Nico and I walked into the studio and um, I had convinced him to wear a suit every day. So he's in a suit and I'm in my ratty ass shit. And we both crouch down in opposite corners. And, uh, and I'm like, what are you doing? And we both admitted to each other that we were taking antidepressants and we both <laughs> took double the dose that morning. <laughs> and that was the moment where I, like, it really, like, I already loved him, but I was like, this guy is my best friend for the rest of my life. 
thanks and praise to Kevin Salem, who has led an incredible life and amazing career. I appreciate him sharing with us a little insight into one of many landmarks in his musical journey through Soma City. And if you want to raise the population to two, go to kevinsalem.bandcamp.com for plenty of material since this 94 opus. Next week, absolute icon of music and legend of my CD shelf, Reese Fulber and I talk about the ins, outs, attack, decay, sustain, and release of Frontline Assemblies, one and done with Roadrunner Records, Millennium. Until then, avoid the perils of Y2K by going to Apple Podcasts and leaving me a five-star review. Check out the Meet Me Pod Picks playlist on Spotify for songs from all of the albums featured on the show, and follow me on Instagram at Meet Me Pod for updates and contests. I am Ryan Rainbow. This is Meet Meep, and yes, that's the best I could come up with. Bye!